0: Alright, well we're going to have a good time tonight, totally confident of that. going to throw you a bit of a curveball, so you thought we'd finished the Malachi series, but if you'd followed the passage closely last week, you would have realised that we didn't look at the last three verses, because when I was talking to Dean about him preaching last week, I said, look, can you leave me those last three verses, I really want to preach on those, and he was gracious enough to say yeah, so we made this arrangement. So in one sense, we're kind of finished, but I just want to zone in on on these last three here. Um, Also, just to say that uh, previously I would have put a lot of scriptures up on the screen. I'm doing that less and less, partly because um, I want you to get used to holding your Bible and flicking around and finding books in the Bible, because I've got a conviction that many Christians don't do that much, and it's good to just get hold of the thing and get used to reading it, okay? Okay. because uh, if you don't, it's just, it just becomes one of those things where it's, it's like, it's the way, the illustration I use sometimes is, it, it's like, how many meals that you've ever had in your life, literal meals, can you remember? I mean, maybe if I, I want specific, not just sausage and eggs, no, no specific m- moments where you had a meal. How many could you list off? Some of you five, maybe some of you ten, maybe some of you twenty, maybe some of you real food lovers thirty, okay? <laughs> yep. But but here's the question. Here's the question. What shape would you be in if you'd only ever eaten 30 meals? Bad shape. There are a lot of other meals you've had that may not be that memorable, but they've added massively to your nourishment, agreed? And your health. Now, there are those moments when you read the words, and you know... I'm a charismatic Christian, so, you know, the more explosive moments, the better. There are those moments where God just powerfully highlights stuff, and you know, gosh, I never saw that before, even though I've read it ten times before, and God just speaks powerfully and clearly through the word. The more of those, the better I say. But here's what I also know. When it's not like that, you're still getting nourished. Anyone agree? Yes. So please don't make the foolish decision that, you know, well, you know, I read it a few times lately and it hasn't really been that exciting, so we'll just put it aside for a bit. That's like stopping eating, because your last few meals you had weren't that dramatic. It's going to affect your health. So I want to get you guys used to flicking around, and we're going to make lots of flicking sounds with our Bibles, and we flick to different passages. Are you up for some flicking? All right, Malachi chapter 4. For those of you, most of you don't have a clue where that is because you haven't read your Bible for a month. It's in the last book in the Old Testament, which is about two thirds through. The Bible's split in two Testaments, old and new. It's the last book in the Old Testament. I'm going to pray. I cannot hear many flicking sounds. Who's got their Bibles with them? Who hasn't? Shame on you. I've thought, about, I've thought about, you know, doing that thing where you kind of get some church Bibles and you, you give out, you know? Like that idea? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, let's pray. Shall we ask for, God, ask for God to help and, you know, really bring, by the Spirit, the Word to life? Yeah. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Yeah. And the idea is it comes in and it gets right to the heart of the matter. And that's where we're going to go tonight, so... So I just want to simply pray, Father, holy, heavenly Father, that you would, well, that, by the way I preach, I would just let your word do what it does. I wouldn't get in the way of it. Pray, Lord, that it very truly tonight would be living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, I just pray that the, your word would run into hearts and lives tonight. Do amazing things, I pray. Do amazing things. In the name of Jesus. So it's going to be a sermon of two halves today. Um, There's very much two halves to it, but I think both are very important and I want you to really zone in for both. With the second one, we're probably going to open a can of worms a bit more so than with the first, but the first one is still very important. Let's read Malachi 4, verse 4 to 6. "'Remember the law of my servant Moses, "'the statutes and rules that I commanded him "'at Horeb for all Israel. "'Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, "'before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes.' And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus ends the Old Testament. Now that ending has perplexed some theologians to the degree that they've actually switched the order around. Because it's just ended on such a negative note, they're thinking, God, we can't have it end like this, and they've switched it around. But that's, that's how it ends, I mean, need to take it as it's originally written. Now what's going on here? Why this mention at the end of Moses and Elijah? And then what's this talk about the hearts of fathers being turned to the hearts of children? I'm going to just explain this first so you understand what's going on here. This isn't about family reconciliation at this point. What's happening is this, is that God is saying to the Israelites, his people, do you know what, your spiritual forefathers, people like Moses and people like Elijah, well, you don't look much like them. In fact, by the way you're going about things and the state of your heart, you're nothing like them. You see, Moses and Elijah would particularly have been heroes to the Israelites. They would have looked at them and they would have loved them. I mean, I, I would spend a whole sermon even if I just, just picked on one of them. But if you're not well read biblically, you're not familiar with these characters, please get into the book of Exodus to find out about Moses particularly and the book of 1 Kings to find out about Elijah. They were staggering. In a beautiful way. Here's what I mean. They were very, very human, both of them. Moses, as a young man, was impetuous and made a deadly, fatal mistake and murdered someone. As a young man. Then he became dejected and disillusioned for 40 years. is in, in literally in a literal wilderness. And then when God actually calls him to go and release the Israelites from Egypt, he becomes Mr. Unwilling, Mr. I-can't-do-it. To the extent his unwillingness actually arouses God's anger. I mean, you want to talk about issues? He's gone. Then we've got Elijah, that mighty prophet, that mighty prophet of God. But at times, serving the Lord for him becomes so much, he becomes almost suicidal. He, he, He falls into a depression, and he says, there's no point anymore, there's no point. Very human, and yet mightily used by God. And God loves them in their frailty. God loves you in your frailty, do you know that? God loves you in your frailty. God doesn't have an issue with your frailty. Sometimes we have a bigger issue with our frowty than God does. Yeah? Because we're looking at other people who don't look that frow, but you don't either, but you don't realise that. <laughs> you're looking at others who don't look that frow, and look at others and you can think of ten reasons why God loves them. And ten reasons, 10 reasons you know, why the heck does he love me, you know, because this is, this is crazy. God loves you in your frailty. The Bible says God remembers you form; me, knows you're just dust. He really doesn't have very high expectations of what you can do in and of yourself. It's a beautiful thing. That's why he says, look, just come and abide in me. Make me a shelter, hide in me. I'll give you some resources so you can actually live a life that glorifies me. So it's a beautiful thing. So when we look at Moses and Elijah and then when God looks at these people in, in Malachi and says, you're nothing like them, it's not God saying, why aren't you strong like them? It's not God saying, why aren't you uncomplicated like them? It's not God saying, why are you so frail? Not at all. It's God saying, why are you so hard in your heart? Why? What have I done that would make you divorce your heart from me in this way. Grieves God's heart. He said, I just want you to come back meaningfully. That's what's going on there. And so when God says, I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, what's he saying? He said, I'm going to do a work in my people and it's going to be almost like family reconciliation whereby the sons again, when they love their father, they're happy to take on the marks of their father. Yeah. You know when a child is disillusioned with his parents? You know, very often, if a, if a child would rebel, it's because they, 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 they've got an issue with their parents. And so they don't, want to look, they don't want to look like them. I don't want to talk how they talk. I don't want to, and there's this thing that very often you find people do when they're going through that kind of in-between child and adult phase. They do that. And it, it, you can trace it back to an issue, you see? An issue of the heart. They don't want to be like you. God says, I'm going to deal with this so that, you know, my people, you're going to start looking like Moses and Elijah again. Is that, you like that? Yeah. Wonderful, isn't it? That's God's plan. I'm going to join the whole thing up. You see, God is about a mighty work. God is about a huge narrative, a huge uh, drama. He's the producer, the director. It's his story. We often pronounce it wrong. We call it history. It's the wrong pronunciation. It's his story. He is writing something through history. You are a part of that. We tend to think very cyclically. We're in a very strange society at the moment, very unlike many societies that have gone before us. So we tend to think, so me, I was born in 1973. I know. <laughs> I know. So I tend to think that's when life started. Why? Because I have no sense of Stephen Liston, son of, son of, son I don't have that. We're a very individualistic society. We don't have that sense of who I am, in terms of our lineage, very often. We're not encouraged to think that way. We encourage it's all about you. You landed in there. You're going to have a great time. And the whole narrative is built around our own little lives. And as such, we can be very isolated. No, God is doing something much bigger than that. And you've got to get it because it will affect your faith. It will affect your Christianity. It will affect the way you work out your discipleship if you think it's all about you. If you think you're the main character, that will affect the way you live your life. You are not the main character. You have a very small part to play, though significant. But it's small. God does not need you, but he graciously wants to involve you. There's one hero to this story. His name is Jesus. All right? He's the man. Just, if you don't like it, get over it. All right? He's the man. It's all about him. It's very important that we understand this. Otherwise, you have an isolated, individualistic Christianity, which actually isn't Christianity. Sorry. Sorry. You might sing about Jesus and other things. and that. No, Christianity is where you say, do you know what, I'm going to lay aside this false belief that it's all about me and I'm going to sign up to what this Jesus is doing. Yeah. That is it. That's what it is. And it's the most liberating thing in the world. Amen. <laughs> okay? So God's about a mighty work. A huge historical narrative which you get a chance to play a part in. It's beautiful. So he calls you by name, loves you, As an individual, yes, calls you. He's not a job lot. He calls you, he's gifted you to play your part, but it's a part. It's a part. And it all heads towards Christ. So God is saying, I'm going to do a mighty thing. And I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers, so that my tapestry that goes from the beginning to the end comes together beautifully. Now there's two things, firstly, that keep us from this. We're going to look at the first is what I would describe as a false security. The Jews fell into it a lot. They would be confident in their ethnic ethnic makeup. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a child of Moses. I'm a Jew. They were Jews, God's people, these heroes. I'm descended from them. Their blood runs in my veins, therefore I'm okay. Wrong. If you flick to John 8, it's a sweet, sweet sound. Don't just pretend now, actually go to John 8. Don't just do (laughs) flicking. I know you lot, you can't find it, so you just make flicking sounds. John 8. Jesus is having a discussion with the Jews. John 8 verse 39. Jews answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you was Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. False security. Yeah? Well, look, his blood runs in my veins. We're Jews. Jesus said, no. Sonship is about being a chip off the old block. Sonship's about looking like your father. That is biblical sonship. It's a false security. Maybe you've got that. Well, you know, I go to church sometimes. Or my my, my family's Christian. Or that's my background. Or I prayed a prayer when I was five. Do you look like Moses and Elijah? What I mean is this. Do you have a very human and a very frail and yet a very genuine trust in Jesus Christ? I'm not asking whether you prayed a prayer when you were five. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you to trust Jesus. It's a different question entirely. It's a different question entirely. Are you trusting him? This is something very, very humbling. If you flick to Hebrews 11... Hebrews 11 is a beautiful chapter where it goes through this list of all the heroes of faith, heroes and heroines. They're all in there. You name them, they're in there. It's beautiful. But listen to what it says at the end. Hebrews 11. Towards the end, if you've got to Peter and James, you've gone too far. Hebrews 11, verse 39. So he's just wheeled off all these heroes. And he says, And all of these, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Or they should not be made complete. What God is saying is this. He promised the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their heroes, Moses, Elijah. He promised them something. They lived with this vision of this glorious kingdom, but they didn't inherit it. Why? Well, actually, do you know why? Because God had promised something for another generation that would come after Christ all those that have lived since Christ, so that actually God was complete in something, so that apart from us, these guys shouldn't be made complete. They are complete as they come together with us. God is about something eternal. You are part of this. I've tried to emphasise this a bit part to deal with pride. But let me emphasise now, it is a mighty part to deal with false humility. You have a chance to be involved Meaningfully, in a universal cosmic drama that throws every other story you've ever read or heard into complete insignificance, you have a chance to be caught up in the story. This is mighty. And God, in his mercy, in his mercy, has set apart a generation of believers that come after Christ to join up with those who who came before Christ to be one mighty people serving him. Isn't it a beautiful picture? let your head be lifted let your heart sing let your heart sing it's so much better than little old me isn't it? little old me now. oh you know what's going to happen now you know, come on come on he's got you in his hand he can't be snatched out There's something bigger going on it's a beautiful beautiful thing and then if we just flip back to Colossians 2 I'm going to just hit a few things on the head with this so we hit the false identity thing and then we're going to just hit strange beliefs strange and weird beliefs Colossians 2 verse 8, it's only a small little letter. It's after Ephesians and it's after Philippians, but it's, after, it's before Thessalonians and Timothy. It's sandwiched in there. Colossians 2 verse 8. Listen to the Apostle Paul, he's very strong in what he says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There's a lot of funny beliefs out there and they're not according to Christ. And this is the really scary thing. There's a lot of funny beliefs out there that come in the disguise of Christ that are not according to Christ. Lots of bizarre, strange ideas. that are apparently a Christian and they're not. They stink to high heaven. They trap people and make people bound up, and rob people of their joy, and make people just want to sin secretly, because they're not really finding any joy in Christ anymore. It's horrible. It's a horrible thing. See to it. No one takes you captive. What kinds of things? Well, philosophy, highfalutin ideas that sound like, well, that sounds a bit clever, but it just leads you to captivity. There's some bizarre ideas in psychology. If you're into psychology, just... Just make sure you get your Bible and use it as a plumb line okay? against what you're hearing. Don't just take it on because so-and-so said. some strange ideas in there. Current opinion. Current opinion. Here's some stupid current opinion for you about Christmas. You ready? This is what waitrose have to say about Christmas. All right? You ready? Right? Waitrose. There's only one place to be this Christmas. What? What? What are you talking about? Waitrose. There's only one place to be... What? Waitrose? <laughs> That's what are you saying? So you're saying, if I don't go to a waitrose for my turkey, what? I can't celebrate Christmas? What are you on about? It's stupid. And I hate it. Here's why I hate it. I hate it because a lot of people can't afford to shop in Waitrose. So, what do they do at Christmas? Oh, we just miss Christmas? Oh, we just miss Christmas? Is Why? Well, we can get to Waitrose. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, there's Sainsbury's down there. No, yeah, but no, I can't go there because there's only one place to be at Christmas. What are you talking about? I want to just say this because it's silly and it's stupid that people believe this rubbish. Oh, I better go to Waitrose and get my turkey. Well, no, I'd go, where well, you like and get your turkey. To so make sure you do one thing, will you? Worship Jesus. Yeah? Only one place to be this Christmas. Yeah? Worship, worshiping Jesus. Right? Because he's the Savior. Yeah? So waitresses don't get to tell you what happens at Christmas. Right? It's about Jesus. <gasps> it's about the Son of God. That's what Christmas is about. Okay? It's about Him. If you're not into Him, don't celebrate it. It's silly. You're just being silly. Unless you want to celebrate Eid as well. Right, just go and celebrate. All, just celebrate. Just celebrate all the religious festivals. Otherwise, why on earth are you celebrating Christmas? You don't love Jesus. Don't do it. What would I do? Start loving Jesus. Then you can celebrate Christmas. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just eating turkey. That's all you do. You're eating turkey with silly hat on. <laughs> Basic. <laughs> I do love you. I do love you. But it's got to be said. It's got to be said. Because otherwise, it's just a joke, and all you do is you spend loads of money end up in debt and think, what was that about? Well, the reason why you're thinking, what was that about? is because you don't know Jesus. That's what it is. Okay? you might think, God, you're being horrible tonight. Well, I want to agree with Adam Martin's t-shirt last week. It was a brilliant t-shirt. It says this. Truth hurts, lies kill. And I don't want to kill you, but I'm happy to hurt you if it would get you to think through what on earth you are doing. And who on earth you're believing. There's a lot of rubbish out there. Some of it dressed up as theology. Get help to make sure you don't get taken captive by it. Because it, it, it can just really mess you up. Alright? Yeah, yeah. Alright. <laughs> Sermon 2. That was the first one. Sermon 2. Malachi 4. Okay. I'll send you Elijah the prophet. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Listen to a theologian on this. Although the reconciliation of family discord is not the focus of this postscript in context, that message is certainly relevant given the breakdown of the nuclear family unit in Western society. The disillusion of the family is manifest in rampant dysfunction seen in parents and children alike in the form of abuse, addiction and obsessive behaviour patterns seen in parents and children alike. What better word for a society disintegrating slowly due due to its own self-absorption than turn to God and to each other? What better word for a society disintegrating slowly due to its own self-absorption than turn to God and turn to one another? What is the gospel about, folks? Let's just ask the question. Let's strip it right back. If you were to say to me, Steph, give me one reason why I should become a Christian, here's what I wouldn't say, so that you can be happier. Here's what I wouldn't say, so that life can be easier. Here's what I wouldn't say, so that Jesus can help you with your problems. I wouldn't say that. If you want me to strip it right down, what would I say? I would say this, so you can be reconciled to God. That's what you need. The gospel's about reconciliation. We are born alienated. A miracle has to happen to get us back. That miracle is Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the miracle. That's the rescue. You see, this is the big deal. This is what. Because some people they don't get the cross. The reason they don't get the cross is they don't get the problem. The problem is primarily that you're not happy. That's not. The that problem isn't primarily that you're not happy. That's just a byproduct of the fact you're alienated from God. Or it's not primarily that you're not peaceful, that's a byproduct. Or that life's tough, that's a by product. What's the heart of the issue? You're alienated from him. You're separated from him. There's a huge barrier in the way. You don't know him. We are born blind and lost. A miracle needs to happen. The only way through that barrier is Jesus Christ. You say, well, how how does that work? Well, how it works is, is that what he did on that cross was he resolved the situation properly. We're going to look at that as we go on this evening. But suffice to say, for now, in this point in the message, the gospel's all about reconciling us to God. There's a vertical element to it. But then once that's been accomplished, there's a horizontal element. God is looking for us to be reconciled with different people in our lives that we've fallen out with, that we are uh, holding bitterness towards, resentment towards, that we refuse to forgive, people that um, where there's discord. He's looking through the cross to bring about horizontal reconciliation also. That's what I'm going to speak on tonight. It's very, very important and very, very meaningful. What does becoming a Christian involve then? If it's reconciliation, well, what does that entail? I've written a short list just to give you a feel. It entails being adopted as a son, it entails being taught as a disciple being recruited for the battle, being befriended for the journey, being loved as a bride, being killed as a sinner and then resurrected as a saint, being crowned as a co-heir, being clothed as a prince, being beautified as a masterpiece, being commissioned as a missionary, being blessed to be a blessing, being healed to bring healing, being indwelt as a temple, being empowered as a witness, being used as an instrument, being filled as a vessel, being released from your debt, being rescued from the pit, being pardoned of your guilt, forgiven of your sins and restored to glory. It's really good. (laughs) There were just a few thoughts I put together. There's a whole lot more to it than that. It's just a few thoughts. It's a very rich and multifaceted salvation. It's not one-dimensional, black and white. It is immensely multifaceted, like the most precious diamond you can imagine. Every way you hold it and look at there's fresh facets of light that come through. It's a beautiful thing. But the knock-ons of that are supposed to spill out horizontally. It's not enough to just receive that and enjoy that and then not give attention to, how are my relationships? How are my relationships with my parents? If you're married, with my spouse, if you've got brothers and sisters, with my siblings, with my friends. How are they? Because the sobering thing is this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul, he makes a very big statement about Christians and what's been entrusted to us. Isn't to what he says. He's just spoken about, if you're in Christ, you're a brand new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Hallelujah. Amen. Then he says this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If you're a Christian, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. It's been given to you, entrusted to you. Very, very important. You carry it. You're a living example of it. You're an example of someone who has experienced reconciliation. I was lost, but now I'm... I was blind, but now I... You know how it works. Something's happened to me. A miracle has happened. I'm not what I was. And you carry it with you into your relationships. It's not enough to say, oh, isn't that great, great, well I'll hold this in. No, because you see God doesn't like ponds, but he loves rivers. Understand what I'm saying? When he gives his living water to you, it's not just so it sits there in a pond. It's so it flows through you as a river. That's what it's about. God does not have a problem giving you huge amounts of blessing. He really doesn't. He just wants to know that it's going to flow out. Yeah? You start doing the pond thing, you're probably going to just stuff things up and block the whole system up. God says, I want to bless you. Just give it out. Just give it away. Trust me that there is a never-ending supply from heaven. As you do this, it will keep coming. It will keep There's a faith issue in there for us. So how do we work this out practically? When the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Now, a peacemaker is very different from a peacekeeper. Very important you understand this. What's a peacekeeper? Well, in war-torn countries, we see that United Nations will send a peacekeeping troop. What do they do? Well, basically, firstly, why are they sent? Because there is no peace. And what do they do? They try to keep the peace. They stop it kicking off. Why do they have to be there? Because there is masses of anger. Under the surface, violence, just waiting to kick off. There's loads of uh, desire for vengeance. It's all just bubbling away. Why? There is no peace. Where there is no peace, you need a peacekeeper. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. That is much more radical. Blessed are those who come in and actually deal with the situation and bring about true and lasting peace. So you haven't got to fill the place with peacekeepers. That's what God's after. They'll be called sons of God. Why? Well, because God's just like that. In what sense? That's the gospel. Isn't it? Yeah. Jesus came in. Oh, you, read the, you read the gospel and they go, people say, oh, Jesus is a nice guy. Read your Bible. It's confrontation after confrontation after controversy after confrontation. It's all kicking off. And then it kicks off massively at the cross. Why? Because Jesus is coming to make some peace look like it well sometimes you want to get some peace you've got to go through some rucks you want to keep the peace yeah, it'll all look nice just don't say that whatever you do because if you do it it'll all kick off just don't go there on that subject whatever you do just don't say it like that because it's yeah because you you're like that your eggshells <laughs> have a lot of that at Christmas don't we don't say that Uncle, Uncle Enzio you know all that <laughs> yeah I forgot You know? Oh, please. But we avoid confrontation. As a result, there's no peace. Jesus comes in highly confrontational. Why? He wants to get some peace going. Yeah? He wants some peace. I love it. I love the thing with Peter. I'll say this a lot. It's an old joke, but it's a a good one. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, the night he was arrested, when Jesus appears to Peter after he's resurrected, he takes Peter for a walk and he asks Peter, do you love me? How many times does he ask him? Great, great. Right. Why? Because he's, he's, he's looking to actually take Peter back to it and work the thing through. Why? So that there's real peace about what happened. Otherwise, you know what would have happened, don't you? No one would have ever mentioned what number around Peter. <laughs> you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't. Don't talk about the Trinity. It around. <laughs> it's true. Why? Because it's unresolved. Yeah? Don't mention him. He just flips, man. He just flips. And you know what I'm talking about. Because some of you, you just flip on certain things. Why? You haven't sorted stuff out. You haven't sorted stuff out. All it takes is one look from that particular person or one word from them and you've got your paranoid goggles on. Why? Because you've not sorted it out. It's massive. This is huge. There needs to be confrontation if there's unforgiveness in order to get forgiveness and peace. Sorry. The English culture is one of the most difficult cultures to speak this into because we avoid confrontation. Typically, the Southerners I said this before, say it again. It, we laugh about it, but it's true. Everything's hunky dory and rosy, and it isn't. No, that's fine. Listen, that's that to me? It's fine. You think, I oh, know it's not. I oh, know it's not. I oh, know it's, it's, it's fine, And eyes are filling up. Think, it's not fine. Let's talk about it. No, no, no. Please. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. Let's talk about it. I'll be like, well, just stuff it down and it will go somewhere. Well, where does it go? Where does it go? I'll stuff it down. Yeah, where is it? In you. It goes in you. And then guess what? It comes out in really bizarre ways. (laughs) Serious. People get ill. Stomach ulcers. People get ill. Why? Unforgiveness. Is everyone who gets ill not forgiving? No, no, no. But it happens. You can't separate your spirit from your body. That's crazy. Don't do that. Don't make that crazy mistake. You're unified. You're a unified whole. It affects you. You get isolated. You withdraw from people. You become aloof. You treat those people coldly. You just feel no love in your heart for that person. What's going on? You're stuffing things down. You're not walking in forgiveness. You're walking in unforgiveness. But you put a nice Christian smile on it. You mustn't do it. It's sin. This is serious stuff, guys. Really serious stuff. We're having good fun tonight, but this is serious stuff. And the hardest place to forgive is with your own family. And I say especially probably with your parents. It's the hardest place to express forgiveness. Come sit down. I want to say this. We need to get our own house in order. There's no point in you going over there and helping that person with that forgiveness issue and going in here and I'm going to help in there if you're not Willing to face up to your own issues of unforgiveness. Got to deal with it, guys. It takes guts. Next Sunday evening, myself and Davina, we're going we're gonna to speak. It's an unrecorded message. We're going to both tell our story in terms of what God's done with us, in terms of walking, help, helping us come to a place of genuine forgiveness, for people in our lives, and the amazing healing and liberation that it's brought. Okay, That's next Sunday evening totally unrecorded because it wouldn't be appropriate to put on the internet but we really want to just we want to help people really work this out because this is massive how many Christians carry deep resentment bitterness anger towards their parents many I fear many I want to read you a parable we're going to end it there unless I think of something else to say Matthew 18 again it's Peter I love Peter makes me feel like just maybe I really am saved. Matthew 18, 21. Jesus has been teaching on forgiveness. Verse 21, Matthew 18. Peter asked a question I'd ask, or I'd want to ask if I was as bold as he was. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Many as seven times. Thinking, please, no more than that. And that would have been amazingly gracious, really, in his mind, because the Old Testament law was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So he's thinking, seven times? That's like the number of you know, completion, that seems pretty big. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And he's not saying 490, he's saying you just keep doing it. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a pittance in comparison. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to, now the Greek here says, to the torturers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What's Jesus teaching there? He's teaching to disciples, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, your heavenly Father will hand you over to the torturers. It's just being taught. I meet a lot of tortured Christians. They say to me things like, if you knew what went on inside. Yeah? They say to me, as soon as I'm saying something, I'm, I'm analysing it and I'm... I'm flipping out around people and I don't know what to say and just oh, crazy stuff. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy, there. so many. And it's not always the case at all, but sometimes I think, I wonder whether you've got unforgiveness in your life. It's just in torment. What's the deal? Here's the bottom line. We live in a messed up world. People do crazy, horrible things There will be things done to people in this room that would just make, you know, would make me want to just go crazy if I heard about it. Horrible, horrible things happen. When we say the world is fallen, we're not just talking about theology. What we're saying is nasty things happen. Horrible things that make us seethe with anger, that make us want to punch something or someone. Stuff that just does our head in. Live in a horrible, messed up world. Okay? just the reality of what it is. Things we do, things that have been done to us. Things we say, things that have been said to us. But God says this, God says, before you're a victim, you're a perpetrator. And because your sin is against God, who is eternally beautiful, innocent, glorious and holy, your sin against him is like that first debt. It's massive. It's the equivalent of billions of pounds. It's massive. Compared Compared to your sin against him, the way people have sinned against you, it's a pittance. Now, I'm not saying what you've experienced is small. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm not saying that. Incredibly painful. But what I'm saying is this. God has forgiven you. And now he calls you to forgive others. And you can't receive his forgiveness and then withhold forgiveness from others. You can't do it. It's anti-gospel. Sorry, folks. And it involves pain very often. Sometimes you've got to go to places in your own spirit that you've locked down for years. But you've got to get that stuff out. You've got to release yeah, notice what he says forgiving your brother from your heart is it a decision? yeah but it's a lot more than that yes it's a decision absolutely but it's a lot more than that forgiving him that, pe- that person with your affections from the deepest pa- point that often means being brutally honest in the way you never have about the way you've been hurt by that person and really just letting God come in this is really important this is massive it's massively on God's agenda and God is too good to leave you with knots in your spirit hallelujah he's a good father and he's not willing to come into you say yeah I'll come in as a UN peacekeeping force no he comes in as the peacemaker you might think if I deal with this it's all going to kick off well okay maybe very often when you make peace it kicks off the cross is the ultimate kickoff. it's violent it's like, man, alive. What's, you wouldn't want to have been there. You wouldn't want to have seen it. You want to, we, I tell you, if I'd known what it would have been like and if I, if I was alive then, I would have run a million miles. I would not have wanted to have been around there. Why? The most terrifying thing you could imagine. But it had to happen so that peace could come. Whatever will kick off as you forgive others will be nothing compared to that. But you might have to go through it a bit. But what have I said to you before? I said we're building a church here. We're not building an event. Alright? We're building a community of people that are centred around the Lord and love one another and are going somewhere together in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is about to work with us. He's got us going somewhere. Some of you, you're sitting here and you're thinking, do you know what? I look okay to others but if they knew, if he knew, if others knew how messed up I was they'd reject me in a moment. No, we wouldn't. We just wouldn't. Because just like you look good we might look good but we're all the same for goodness sake. Isn't that the beauty of the church, isn't it? it, We all come on level ground. right? Because we're all before the cross, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah? We're all before the cross. And we're all a bit nutty. Let's face it. Let's face it, shall we? But Jesus is for us. He loves us. He's got a purpose for us. And he wants to help us unravel all that nonsense, doesn't he? So we can have a sound mind. It's our inheritance in Christ, isn't it? A sound mind. It will be transformed. By the renewal of our minds. Beautiful. What a gospel, hey? What This is good. Some of you have freaked out because maybe no one's ever told you this stuff before. But let me say, let me just say this. This is good stuff. This is really good stuff. And it's all possible because of Jesus and his life, death and resurrection for us. So in this next part of the service, as we sing more songs and take the bread and the wine this will be the most helpful way for you to come to terms with the fact that you need to forgive. Because you come to the cross again, yeah? And you suddenly realise, oh my goodness, I have been forgiven and will continue to be forgiven for my crazy thoughts and other things because of the blood of Jesus. Because of his broken body for me. So break that bread. And when you break it, break it good. Break it. Because you're remembering that his body was broken for you. It's important. Don't just do some nice little polite thing. Break the thing. Yeah? Why? Because it reminds you, his body was broken for me. Because my sin is that serious and his love is that strong. And then when you get to the wine, just stop and ponder. The blood of the son of God was shed. Your blood may have been shed by abusive parents your blood may have been shed by bullies in the playground. If not physically, spiritually, your blood might have been shed by all kinds of words because the tongue has the power of life and death. And that hurts. But there's healing at the cross. There's healing through the blood of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's worship, shall we?